All right, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. We are excited to have another Clinical Savant Series uh, participant today. So we are sitting down with the world's expert when it comes to gait evaluation, Dr. Courtney Conley. So uh, Dr. Conley practices in Golden, Colorado, and uh, we're, we're excited to be sitting down with her today and, and kind of get into some nuts and bolts of, of gait and, and what it means in clinical practice and, and what your ideas on, I guess, uh, where, where gait fits into the eval and, and uh, how we can use it in assessment. So. Um, so, yeah, so Courtney, in school you're taught Parkinsonian gate, you're taught, you know, all these like neurologic gates. So maybe if you could inspire all of our listeners on why gate evaluation is really important in the exam and uh, how it's probably not getting done like it should and maybe uh, motivate us all on, on that idea. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, one of my favorite things to do <laughs> because I think it's such a, a window to everything else that you're doing, right? So it's just a huge... Um, window of opportunity to really assess the patient. Mm. Um, yeah, and you you know in school you're taught all of these. I don't know if scary is the right word, but you know these neurological gait patterns. And when in reality, if you just watch most people walk, there's so many things that you can that can get pointed out to you um, from a functional perspective. Mm. You know, and you know, people come into our offices mostly to decrease pain, right? Mm. And I always say that's really the easy part, right? Like getting rid of the pain is the easy part, but correcting function and improving efficiency, I think that's where it's at. And I think a lot of that comes with evaluating gait. Yeah. We always kind of joke like how you got your foot fetish, so how, or you know, like myself, you, or like so. Um, what was what minute, minute forty eight? We're already off, already the off the rails. Perfect. <laughs> so I guess like what enamored you originally about the foot, the lower extremity and gait, you know, when you could have gone down many different areas, why did you choose to kind of uh, go down the route that you did? I, um, I spent a lot of my younger years, um, in ballet, believe it or not, mm. in point shoes. And, um, then I became a triathlete when I, um, was in Chicago. So about 15, 20 years ago. And, I just was chasing a lot of dysfunction. Um, nothing really seemed to be efficient with my movement. Mm. And then I started, um, I worked in a couple orthotic labs, and so I figured, well, let's just start bracing everything. I'm going to brace the foot, I'm going to get an aggressive shoe, I'm going to start to brace my motion, and it never, uh, it never panned out. It was... You know, something might have gotten better, you know, at the foot, but then I was knee and then it was, so I was just always fascinated with the mechanics of the foot. And I was like, why are we doing this with our patients? Why are we bracing the foot when there's so many beautiful things that can happen there? Hmm. If you just let it do what it's designed to do. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole of going from, um, you know, trying to eliminate its motion to understanding its motion and then trying to get it stronger and more efficient. Most of our listeners are going to know like who Tom Michaud is, who is like, um, maybe, uh, a name that no one's heard of that you really like to, you know, whether it's a book or whether it's, um, you know, a seminar series or like who's blowing your mind that maybe our listeners have never heard of. Yeah. You know, 
people always ask me that question, like, what books do you like? What, mm. and you know, there's just not a lot of out there on foot and gait. Um, I'll tell you the researchers that I've been really loving is Irene Davis. She does some great work. Ebony Rio, Joe Cook, kind of getting into all the tendon work. Um, I, th- I think that's, and I think we're going to start seeing more of um, researchers looking at. I don't want to use the word barefoot because people get all you know. philosophical. Then. Yeah, 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 and it's or in their yeah, they're like, oh, right? she's a hippie. She wants everybody to walk around <laughs> yeah, like barefoot, right. and that's not the case. But I think we're hopefully going to start to see a lot more research being like, hey, let's take our shoes off and let's see what we can do to restore function here. So I think more of the those kind of research names are going to be popping up more. Yeah, it's cool. We always say, well, I think I stole it for Brett. Maybe uh, you were saying shoes are basically like sensory deprivation chambers. And one of your points today at the RTP Symposium is that sensory and motor functions are very closely intertwined. And so how maybe have you found, uh, you know, the sensory system and the motor system integrating? And, and how are some of those uh, assessments that you use in, in gait and foot and foot and lower extremity? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. I, I think the easiest assessment is just watching someone balance mm-hmm. with the shoe that they walk into your office in and then have them take their shoe off. Mm. I mean, there's 200,000 plus sensory receptors on the bottoms of the feet that are screaming to feel something. Mm. You know, if you watch any baby in the world, the first thing they do is take their shoes off, (laughs) right? Because they want to feel, they're trying to gain as much sensory information from their environment as they can, you know? And then as we start to, um, you know, put our feet in shoes that don't allow our foot to do what it's supposed to do we just start decreasing all of that sensory input so i think from a rehabilitation perspective one of the easiest things we can get our patients to do is you know just have them feel the ground a little bit and some of them will be like you want me to walk around barefoot like even in my house i'm like yeah try it you know i mean it's a transition like you know you can't just especially you know with some patients obviously that have diagnoses with you know, that don't like shock, Mm. you know, you have to transition, but eventually those changes happen. And I think it's mandatory and it needs to. Yeah. It needs to happen. I like it. What's kind of your checklist that you go through on a gate eval? So like what's, uh, those of us who heard you talk today, we kind of, we know, but like for the listeners who weren't here today, like what is the, sounds like you like like an overall picture to start with. And then you start kind of going like a joint by joint, approach in your evaluation? Yeah, I like to look kind of globally first. So to kind of take a step back and just watch the person mm-hmm. and how they interact with their environment. And I think that's even more so than, you know, when I'm like, okay, now you're going to get on my treadmill. Mm-hmm. It's more of like how they're walking back to my office, things like that, where you can start to pick out kind of key things that they're doing, but taking a global perspective first, uh, like I mentioned this morning, um, looking at their person, mm-hmm. you know, how do they do they look comfortable? Do, are they, you know, wincing? I mean, that's aggressive, but you'll be able to pick up on some of those little nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big listener. Mm-hmm. I like to listen to what, I, to what, how they're walking. Mm-hmm. You can hear a lot. You can hear foot drag that would indicate, you know, the inability to dorsiflex the foot, for example, on swing phase. You mm-hmm. can hear foot slap. You can hear, you know, pelvic shifting because one side will be heavier than the other. Um, it's interesting because once you point out those things to the patient, uh, then they start to hear it. And then you're bringing them into a world of them starting to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's key is education, especially with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Cause they, you, you don't know. Mm-hmm. No. 
So this is naturally kind of, I'm assuming, giving you a niche for runners? Or do you do you see a lot of runners? Or are you like, because you, when you hear gait, you think more of like walking locomotion. But are you, um, do you look at runners? Is that like also something you do? Or is basically walking kind of the thing that you're yeah, known in Col- for? Yeah, in Colorado, it's, you know, I always say just when you're, you think you're in good shape in Colorado, you look to your right and somebody's there just going to crush you. <laughs> you, know, I, yeah, you know, it's like, there's no 5Ks in Colorado. People want to like, you know. They run the half. Yeah, half they're doing an ultra, yeah. ultra race, uh, which poses this whole other set of issues. But I like all of it. I like watching just, you know, someone who wants to walk around the block, right? How do they improve their efficiency? And then from the run, from the running, the running world, um, that's a whole breed Mm. right because they're gonna run no matter what yeah and I think it's fun it's being able to dial into their mechanics and be like okay how can we make you a more efficient runner right and it's fun once you start to see that because when you see a really good runner in their gait it's a beautiful thing to watch because it just looks pretty it's Mm. soft it's quiet and you can pick out a lot and try to trying to improve that. And at the same time, I think on the other side of that, some runners don't look pretty and they still can run really well. And you're like, do I touch that? Mm. Like we were just looking at uh, a patient on our break, and you know, you you see his foot like severely pronating in mid stance. He's running a 220 marathon. It's like. You know, he has a difficult time propelling forward. Hmm. You know, do you go down that rabbit hole of addressing that? I mean, that's, I think that's a clinical decision. Yeah. But you do like sufficiency tests, maybe, right? To see if eventually is that tissue going to break down. Mm-hmm. This morning we kind of talked about um, your first half hour is basically about uh, the different evolution of different hominoids and like how we've kind of evolved. So, uh, as we learn more and more about that, how important do you think that is? I know Thomas Schaud's also big on that. Do you think that is like uh, important for really understanding gait to kind of know like how this has all evolved? Uh, I, I think it's so interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Because all those key evolutionary, like if you look at the different species and what really triggered those key adaptations, they're all things that we're still treating today, right? So lumbar instability and the first thing of becoming bipedal um you know the ability to control frontal plane when the pelvis started to change and we started to have hip abductors you know especially down at the foot it's cool right like once the groove where the tibialis anterior sits it changed where it was in the foot and so we started to have midfoot stability Mm -hmm. and the variations of all that right so that's why like you see so many variations in the foot and you just can't say, well, every foot has to look like this because it's just not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because we're still adapting. It's still an evolutionary change. And I think we're kind of screwing it up though because of footwear, for example, and the fact that we ignore rehabilitation at the foot with a lot of our patients. Right. Mm-hmm. Or we do do a lot of passive treatment to the feet. Like we do a lot of manipulation, soft tissue work and it's kind of, I don't know why it is, but it's, because uh, I feel like everybody knows to stabilize the low back. I mean, that's a given fact. But then, like, when we talk about the foot, for some reason, people struggle with, like, you know, good rehab approaches for, you know, turning muscles out of the feet. And I don't know why that is, but that's definitely, yeah. for some reason, it's a problem. Yeah. You know? It's, like, even when I'm, wa- like, watching a patient, I'll just ask them, like, where do you feel 
tension on your feet when you're standing and you know it's always such a window because they'll be like well i feel it on the outside outside of my right foot and the inside of my left heel Mm. right and it's just a static position right so i mean you have to realize that that that's you know we don't move statically right so we have to assess dynamically but it's always so consistent with things that you'll see you know, that they're starting to load certain structures in their stance mechanics. And then you can see that when they walk. And it's just a, it's a precipitation for what you're going to see down the, down the road. Why is this so neglected, do you think? Why is gait evaluation not taught well in school, whether it's PT, Cairo? What, what is the actual reason on why? I, that's a great question, and I think it's a di- it's difficult. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. we had, I think we had a half a semester in Cairo school mm-hmm. on foot and gate. Yeah. And the solution when we were in school was, you know, you'd go into Cairo school and they'd be like, uh, everybody's going to get two fair, free pairs of orthotics. Yep. and From a certain company. And, and <laughs> that's what you do, right? Yeah. And it's crazy to me because it's like, wait, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. We would never do that anywhere else in the body. Right. You would never be like, hey, there's this... Um, back brace company and everybody gets two back braces and you can just wear those the whole time you're in school right but you get two semesters of microbiology or something yeah Yeah. and this is something that you'd be doing all day long um how much are you giving advice on footwear to your patients sounds like from this morning quite a bit so every day every single patient Mm -hmm. every single patient and knowing like where they fit on the you know like i'm on a pretty big mission to um really educate on that because I've seen so many incredible results with changing that. Um, and some people aren't ready, quite ready to hear that. You know, they don't want to go down that road of, I can't wear this shoe anymore. So you have to really watch how you, you know, you have to be able to assess and read the patient mm-hmm. and meet them where they are. We want to be inclusive with all of this, you know, footwear stuff, not exclusive and be like, you need to be in a barefoot shoe or, but I do think that there's certain criteria in footwear that are necessary and one being a wide toe box. Mm. And that shouldn't be that difficult of a concept for people to really be sold on. So let's just take women's dress shoes, for example. So what are some wide toe box shoes that you may recommend for that? Like I know you have dress, a website where you yeah. talk about a lot of this, but just to so, kind of tease it a little bit. In the U.S., there's there's less companies, but Lems and Zero X E R O are both um, shoe companies that have wide toe box shoes. And there's a difference between a wide toe box and a wide shoe. Mm. So that's a big factor there. I've actually called companies and I've been like, "This is BS." Like. This is not a wide toe box shoe because the last of the shoe or the sole of the shoe is very expensive to change. So what they'll do is they'll change the depth of the shoe, like the, the volume. So when people go to put their shoe, their, the shoe on, it's like, oh, I have all this room. And it's like, well, you didn't really do anything. Yeah, all you just... did was change the volume in it. Mm. And that still can you know, it's going to compromise the function of the foot. Mm -hmm. So Lems is a good one. Zero is a good one in the U S and then over in Europe, I mean, Ahenza, Belenka, um, wildling. Mm. There's just a bunch of them out there now. And where you have the, this, uh, shoe guide on your website, correct? What, yeah. What, what's the website? Gatehappens.com. But then under favorite products, there's probably, 
you know, 20 companies there now, mm-hmm. and there's they're coming out more. Um, Softstar is another one out in Oregon, really wide toe box on those guys. But Ultra and um, Topo Athletic are the only running shoes that have that wide toe box. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. So we interviewed um, Golden Harper, who was the founder of Ultra. And um, he, he actually lives in Golden, Colorado now. So he's, I see killer. him quite a bit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, but he, his parents own a running shoe store in um, Utah. Huh. And when he started messing around with this, he would take the shoes in that shoe store, take them to a cobbler, cut down the heel, and put them at a zero drop. Yeah. Um, and they started seeing changes in, you know, diagnoses, plantar fasciitis, which th- which you wouldn't, you would think, well, if I drop the heel down, wouldn't that put more tension along the calf and along the foot? Um, so that's kind of how they all got started, and I love, I do love that running shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I am finding, I think, that's very interesting also is, I used to transition people down. So if they were in like a ten millimeter heel to toe drop, you would be like, "Wow, well, you can't go from ten to zero. Mm-hmm. But if you match the stack height, right? So if I have a shoe with a stack height of twenty eight millimeters, yeah. all right, with the heel to toe drop. Ultra has a stack height with 28 millimeters. Mm. So you match the cushion, but you still allow the foot to be in that functional mm. position. So you still get the benefits of the foot being allowed to do what it's designed to do. And the cushion helps with the transition. And then you can start to cut the cush once the foot gets stronger and the mechanics get a little more efficient. That's amazing. That's yeah, it's been, it's been pretty, and patients love the shoe. Uh-huh. You know, um, Ben O'Nig has done a ton of research with all this foot. I mean, he has, he's probably had published over a hundred articles and he's done a lot on this. And, you know, he's, he was quoted saying when it comes to footwear to prevent injury, the research will show you it's just being comfortable in the shoe. Mm -hmm. Comfort trumps everything else. And you put someone in a shoe that has a wide toe box versus one that doesn't, it's a no-brainer. It's right. like, of course this shoe feels better sure. and more comfortable. Sure. It's pretty cool stuff. Let's bring up Pandora's box, orthotics. So when, um, I don't know, let's keep it real general. If you had 100 people with foot pain, what percent of those 100 do you think need to be an orthotic? That's kind of an easy way for people to start thinking about it. Are you doing less orthotics now than you did 20 years ago or 15 years ago? Um, what's your current thought on orthotic therapy? Yeah, it's, it's changed so much. I mean, when I had my practice in Chicago, which is what, 10, 12 years ago, I, th- I probably casted 50%, 60% of my patients. Because wow. it was like, when we were in school, it was like, oh, you have foot pain? You need an orthotic. Mm-hmm. I think now maybe I'll cast three to five a year. Hmm. I'm kind of there. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more, but yeah. not, I mean, that's probably, yeah. Yeah. that's probably the right number. It's orthotic. I think it needs to be viewed as orthotic therapy. Like there is a time and a place for that, right? Yeah. If you look at the research on treating plantar fasciitis, for example, two weeks up to a year, orthotics can help. Mm. But the problem is, is our patients go in, they get an orthotic. It helps them with their plantar fasciitis for a short period of time. But then nobody ever tells them, Hey, you need to get out of this thing. 
-hmm. or you need to strengthen your foot or this should be what is your exit strategy to get out of the orthotic it's a forever thing it's a forever thing and then they're like well i've been wearing these orthotics for 10 years and now you know I can't lift my big toe by itself. I can't, you know, propel off my foot. And you're like, well, yeah, you've been bracing your foot for 15 years. Yeah. So would the, you would maybe agree with the goal of orthotics is to rehab out of orthotics? Yeah, unless there is a structural variant that you can't overcome with function. Hmm. Do you have any examples of like some of the big hitters that you are, are seeing that orthotics are, are the only option that you... Severe torsions, like severe tibial torsions, uh-huh. like internal tibial torsions, um, sometimes those cases, um, tibial varums, uh-huh. um, forefoot varus. Now those are only going to be about... A true forefoot varus is going to be maybe 1% of the population, but when you start treating foot and gait, you're going to see them. Yeah, you're going to run into them. But it was interesting talking to Tom. We talked about forefoot varus for a while, Michelle. Mm-hmm. And he originally had our opinion of this. And then he's like, you know, anymore, I'm not convinced I need to do anything from an orthotic. And that was yeah. one of my, like, steadfast criteria yeah. for an orthotic was, was that, um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. I mean, I think, other than that, like, I really think that you can rehab the foot to better, you know build a stronger foundation from the ground up and then the whole body just starts to work better it just yeah. starts to be more efficient mm-hmm. Tom also says I really like he says I always ask myself a question of do I need to re- redistribute pressure here Yeah. and if I do need to do that then an orthotic can make sense because you can also redistribute pressure with treatment also Yeah. you know so like the question is if I've not done that with my treatment then you know will an orthotic aid in that process you know so, uh, and then now all the, you know, the rage and the debate of like, do we really need to cast people like you said, and, uh, Tom got me thinking about with the, the postings with yeah. the, you may see the whole casting literally just go away. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, and I, I think, you know, you could do a trial of care with these postings and then yeah. eventually like do something more permanent off that. And, yeah. He's done. So he has those, uh, various posts now. So there's one in the forefoot and then one at the rear foot. Mm-hmm. And, um, he actually mentions a couple studies on his site that he was looking at, but obviously it's, you know, helping to control some of the internal rotation. So the knee valgus, things like that. Mm-hmm. But with the posts, you're not, you can still actually improve strength. Mm. All right. Which is, was really interesting. And it's less stuff. You know, it's so easy. It's like right. a self adhesive that he's designed that you put on the factory insert. Mm. Um, and we had this conversation the other day because he was originally stating we needed both the forefoot and the rear foot, but now it's like you can even dial that down even less one or the other. That's and awesome. just do like, you know, and then especially if it starts to help patients, right? And then you're like, okay, now I know what I need to do to help to restore function at the foot. Like, yeah, and it's, it's fun to watch. It's fun to see. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. Well, uh, what a what a cool little insight. Uh, we tried really hard this time to keep it around twenty minutes, and so <laughs> get, uh, we're doing really good. So um, we could probably talk for days about uh, orthotics and foot rehab and, and different changes and stuff like that. But uh, we're gonna cut it now because uh, we got to go in and, and keep watching. We're at the R two P symposium this weekend, and uh, Courtney, thank you so much for sitting down thank with you. us. Uh, yeah, we learned a ton from you this morning, and we can't wait to keep learning from you. And I'm sure we'll have another conversation at some point. So. Great. 
great. Uh, that'd be awesome. So any closing thoughts, Brett? No, I'm just, yeah, like, like you said, I mean, we've learned a lot already from her lecture today and then we're looking forward to seeing some patients later and we can all kind of come together on some, some ideas for treatment. I love it. Well, is the best place to, to get a hold of you and figure out where, where you're at and stuff, Gate Happens? Yeah. Instagram, uh, Facebook, online, all that good stuff. All that good stuff. I love it. She does amazing stuff on Instagram. So if you're not following them, uh, Gate Happens and definitely do. So I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Courtney. Thanks. See you guys.